Alrighty. We are in Second uh, Peter chapter 1 still. If you'd uh, like to turn your Bibles there. Also, there's Bibles on the back table if you need one. Uh, we're going to continue our look uh, at the, the first chapter of Second Peter, continuing on in him reminding the believers there. Uh, so Second Peter chapter 1. As a way of review, I'm going to uh, quick go through uh, some of what we talked about last week and then get back into uh, the discussion. Uh, we didn't have enough time last week to get through all of the, the things that Peter is talking about. Um, so I just want to reread this passage uh, to you again and uh, just listen. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. So Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we talked about last week, we talked uh, about Peter starting out and describing who he was, that he is a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, that he is first and foremost uh, one who has become a, a slave to righteousness and away from the slave of being uh, in sin. And he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, the same standing that, that he has, because he says this is about the righteousness of Christ applied to our lives, uh, to himself, to his hearers, to us who are here. It's not about anything that, that we have done or we have uh, uh, accomplished in our own life that would warrant the righteousness of Christ, but it's because of his sacrifice on our behalf. So we're all on the same playing field, the same level ground, the same equal standing. And we looked at... Uh, the first part of his his word to them of reminding them that uh, it is because of God's divine power, because of Jesus Christ, that all things have been granted to us that pertain to life and godliness. And, and what a joy that is. That is through the knowledge of Christ. And it's through his own glory and excellence. It's through the glory and excellence of God that our lives revolve around him. And it's not the other way around that. We don't exist uh, so that he can please us, but we exist so that we can please God. And he says that we have been granted precious and very great promises. And we didn't dig into this 
part too much last week, but even thinking about that and at home group, we discussed some of this further and, and what are those precious and great promises that he has given us. First and foremost being that he has, he has given us eternal life, that he has taken us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. That's as, as he states uh, that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And so even as we were singing this, mor this morning and, and in prayer, we have the ability, one of the promises, that we can boldly come before the throne of God, that we can boldly come before Him, and we can ask things of Him because of Christ. That He tells us that He is always with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he is, he is always faithful, that he is a refuge in times of trouble. As you read the scriptures, as you read the Psalms, all of these promises that come out about God and who he is and how he is not like us at all. Greater, amazing, majestic, beautiful, and so that through these promises, through these things, through even being ambassadors, as, as Paul would tell the Corinthians, that talking about as we have been reconciled to God, that because of Christ, that we have been reconciled to the Father, meaning that we now have a relationship with Him, that the sin that separated us, we can now be with Him, have fellowship with Him, be called His sons and daughters. And that as we live that out, that we also then have the objective or have the ministry of reconciliation of telling others, of bringing others to the same awareness, to the same knowledge, of speaking the words of truth to them. And so that through those promises, through living out the Christian life, that we can become partakers of the divine nature, Peter is telling his audience. And it's because we are no longer slaves to sin, no longer satisfying self, but we can now be pleasing to God. And so he tells them, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And we explained a little bit about what virtue was. In other versions of Scripture, the word is used as moral excellence. of knowing the difference between right and wrong, and being obedient to God, living a life of integrity. And that with virtue, adding to your faith virtue, and with virtue, knowledge, and that Peter uses this term a lot in the beginning, the knowledge of God, again, uh, talking about all things that pertain to life and godliness in verse 3, the knowledge of him who called us, and now telling us to supplement faith with knowledge. And knowledge is something that we all need in our lives. And we ended last week with self-control. And in self-control, we looked at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27, where Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's telling them 
uh, an analogy of runners running a race, of athletes being uh, looking towards the prize, looking towards the goal of training their bodies, doing specific things in order to obtain the goal. That self-control in our lives is the same, but we are not looking towards the goal that is perishable. We're not looking towards things that are going to fade away, that will not last, but we are looking towards the goal of things that are imperishable, things that will last forever, things that we, Scripture tells us, not to lay up treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves cannot come and steal. So because of that, we train our minds. We have self-control. We train our bodies to, to do the things that God has laid out in his word, that Christ has told us to live our lives. And he continues that in verse 6, to add to self-control steadfastness. And so this is where we begin our, our study more in, into the book of Second Peter this morning, of steadfastness. What does steadfastness mean? A very popular uh, passage is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And in James, he tells the brothers this. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James tells them that it's by the testing of your faith that steadfastness is produced. Steadfastness meaning remain firm, remain on solid ground, not being tossed to and fro. The testing of your faith. First Peter in his first letter to the churches of Asia Minor was talking to them about this very thing about testing of your faith. And elsewhere he talks about it, that uh, even the, our Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples before leaving that they would face various trials, that the Christian life is not one that is lived in perfect solitude with everyone around the world, but it is in conflict with the world because the world is going one way, which is towards sin and towards all things that are opposed to God. And then there is the life of the believer that has been redeemed by Christ, and we have turned from that turn from the corruption of the world, and turn towards the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, we face various trials in our lives. We come up against different things in our lives, whether it's personal, whether it's financial, whether it's family issues, whether it's health issues. All kinds of things come up in our life that try to discourage us, that try to get us away from the Lord, that try to distract us, that try to Keep us from following after him. And Peter is telling them, you need to remain steadfast in all of these things. And James, same thing, telling them, remain steadfast, remain firm when you face these things. Because when you remain firm, when you remain standing on the promises of God, you will not fall. You will not fail. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 32 through 39. Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 39. 
the author says this. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere. Sorry, faith and preserve their souls. The author of Hebrews is explaining to us what exactly that means. Things that the early Christians endured of suffering, of public ridicule, of having everything that they owned plundered, of people coming in and just taking what they wanted and having nothing left. But the author reminding them that we don't live for the here and now. We don't live for everything that we can obtain here on earth. We don't live for the treasures here. But we live for a greater treasure. Adding steadfastness to this list that Peter is giving them is a part of that understanding. It's a part of that knowledge that we get. When we read the word of God, when we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, of reminding us that this is not our home. Our lives here are just a, a mere speck on the timeline that God has. That he has created us with eternity in our hearts so that we can spend eternity with him for those who know and follow after the Lord. And he goes on and he says, with stat, steadfastness, add this, add godliness. Godliness, being like God, being like-minded, following after Him. Another word that comes to mind when I'm thinking of this and sometimes has a negative uh, connotation to it is the word pious or piety. And it's not a bad word. One of the groups that uh, I'm a part of is called Trestias, and it's a three-day event. Um, in Christian living, and it talks about this word. So I wanted to read even from uh, their booklet of, of the word piety. Piety is the living, recurring experience of the reality of grace in the relationship with God, with others, and with oneself. It is also the process of allowing the Holy Spirit to reorder one's life in relationship with Jesus Christ. Directing one's whole life to God, seeking God's will, being open to His Spirit, allowing your life to be formed into the image of Christ, availing oneself of worship, communion, Christian community, 
Bible study, prayer, and seeking the gifts of the Spirit for ministry and service. So that's a pretty good definition of what it means to live a pious life, a life of piety, a life of godliness, of following after God, of allowing Him to speak into our lives, of allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us so that when there are things that come up against the Word of God, that as we are reading this and we realize, this is not right. I am not following God in this. I am not following His Word. That we say, I need to get rid of it. Not to say, well, God must be wrong, or He must not know what He's talking about, or He doesn't know my situation, or He doesn't know what I'm going through. But having faith in the Word of God to understand, God knows everything. And His Word, as Peter is telling them, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness because it comes from Him, His divine power in our lives that we have this. And we must trust in that Word. We must live that out in our lives. So living a life of godliness, of adding that to our lives, is a part of that. It's not living as the Pharisees and the scribes did. That when we were going through the book of Mark here, as Pastor was leading us through that and spending time with that, we saw the conflict that resided between Christ and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the religious men of the day. And often Christ would come against them and would call them out on their falsehood, would call them out for not being true believers. That in Matthew chapter 6, in various verses, 1 and 2, also in 5 and 16, he talks about the things that they do that are out in the open and that would give piety or piousness a bad connotation because you would the people would see these things happen. That the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they would go out, all right, and they would stand on the corner and they would pray to God and they would ridicule others that were walking by and they would ask for God to work in them but not others. It was about them showing just how religious I am and talking to God not really worrying about the things that Scripture actually talks about. Why don't we go there quick and uh, look at that. So Matthew chapter 6, quick, if you want to turn in there. This would be the, the negative side of, of godliness. These are the things that Christ does not want us to do. This is not ordering one's life uh, for the, the benefits of others. But in Matthew chapter 6, uh, this is what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. It's not about making a big show. It's not about letting everybody know, hey, I just did this. All right. I saw, you know, I was down in New York City, and I saw someone playing, or I saw a homeless man, and I went, and I did this. It's not about relaying that information to others, letting everybody, oh, look how good I am. Look how godly I am being, helping the needy, helping the poor, but it's it's not about letting others know, but it's about just following the, the Lord. 
without looking for praise from others, but knowing that he knows what is going on. If you look at verse 5, it says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, it's not about this flashy show before people to get praise for your glory, for your excellence. But it's what Peter started out with, that this is about God's glory, Christ's glory, his excellence, and not our own. Then if you drop down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's not about heaping up our praises for us. It's about people patting you on the back. Oh, you fasted this week? How good for you. How long have you been fasting? Have you, you done, hey, have you done one of those 40-day fasts? Have you been like Jesus? It's not about getting a pat on the back, but it's about serving God. It's about having a love for Him, not so that you can go and boast before men. But that when the time comes, you are boasting in the Lord because of what He has done. How He has saved you. How He has taken you from this wretched being and transformed your life and given you His righteousness. Another passage of scripture is found in Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14 and we're not going to turn there but it's a story it's a parable uh, that Jesus is telling and it's about a tax collector and the Pharisee and they're both in the synagogue. The Pharisee goes before the synagogue and he points his head towards heaven and he's praying to God and he sees this tax collector beside him and he's praying and he says thank you God that I am not like this tax not like this guy. I'm, you know, tax collectors had a bad rep. Um, they were not very nice people. They would often uh, extort money from people more than what was required of taxes and different things so that they could have money for themselves. They were often working for the Roman government, and the Jewish people did not like this. And so they were seen in a very bad light. And yet, in this parable, the tax collector, as he's in the synagogue, he is on his knees and his face is downcast and he's beating his breast and he's saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Lord said that the tax collector is the one that went away. Redeemed rather than the Pharisee. Because the tax collector had the right approach. He knew who he was before God. He is a sinner. He is in need of mercy. He is in need of grace. So when we're thinking about godliness, it's not about preserving our own selves and being before men and wanting the praise for being like God and doing the things that he has required of. But a godly life, is, as it was said, of availing oneself of these things of worship, communion, Christian community, Bible study, prayer, but it's allowing the Spirit to work in our lives, to speak truth, 
to humble us when we need to be humbled, to root out the, the sin in our lives, to make us more like Christ, to become more like Him in all aspects of our lives. Because we are not saved from the presence of sin until we come into glory, into God's land. One of the things that they said that when we uh, become a believer, one of the things immediately that happens is that we are saved from the, the penalty of sin. We are saved from the condemnation of sin. We have uh, God has poured out His wrath on His Son, Jesus Christ, and satisfied the requirements for that. And so that when we have faith in Christ, we are saved from the penalty. We are saved from death. And we are brought into eternal life. And that's not only that, that we are also saved from the power of sin so that we can be pleasing to God. But we have to wait for the third one, which is being saved from the presence of sin. And until we are saved from the presence of sin, we need to be doing these things that Peter is laying out so that we do become more like Jesus Christ in our lives. So that as we are following him, as we are doing these things, adding virtue to our faith, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, that we get then to the next step that Peter is saying, and he refers to that as brotherly affection. That when you are doing these things, that when you are living out your faith and that you are knowing what is right and what is wrong and you are living to please God, that you are being a man or a woman of virtue, that as you continue to seek out God's wisdom and His knowledge, that as you add that then self-control into your life, that as you train yourself to do these things, that you can then remain firm in this, on the solid ground of Christ our Savior, and when you are remaining firm in that, that you can then walk out the Christian life like God, allowing Him to work through you and in you to make Him more like your Son, and that as that inpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life, there is then an outpouring into others. That from the overflow of what is given to us, we pour that out into our brothers and our sisters of brotherly affection. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, beginning with the preaching of the word, that the Spirit has come, that Christ has ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has descended upon the apostles, and that they are teaching. This is what it says happened in Acts chapter 2 in the early church, starting in verse 42 and 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
And as they came to hear the gospel message, and as their lives were changed, it changed their behavior. It changed their affection towards their fellow man. That people from different statuses were doing different things in order to satisfy the needs of all. That this was a collective engagement. That it wasn't just about me, but it was about the people of our Lord and Savior. And so they would break bread with one another. They would fellowship with one another. They would be praying with one another. And they would be giving of their finances in order to help those that were in need, those that were struggling, those that were downtrodden, so that they can be an encouragement to them, that they can lend a hand, just as Christ would do. While he was even walking on this earth, lending a hand to any who were in need. But brotherly affection is more than just gathering together. It's more than just here being in the church on Sundays, being in home groups on Wednesday, or doing various activities within the church. It's more than giving of our finances, but it's encouraging one another in the Lord. It's encouraging one another on our walk. Paul to the Galatian church told them this in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's more than just meeting physical needs, but it's also meeting spiritual needs. It's also being your brother's keeper. It's also keeping a watchful eye. It's about making sure that as we are on this path together, that as we have equal standing before God, that we are encouraging one another and pushing one another along to, so that we can remain steadfast, so that we can remain faithful, so that we can remain encouraged during difficult times, during those times of testing, during those times when we need the Lord more and more and more. And the way in which he works is most often through his people, whom he has called to his own name for his own purposes, so that we can work together and come alongside of one another. And so adding brotherly affection to these qualities, to these things in our life that we are supplementing, Peter says, with our faith, that we are adding to our faith, that it's not enough to just believe, even though that is enough to save us, it's not enough to remain there. But he says to press on, to move forward, to dig deeper into who God is, to gain more knowledge of who he is, to let it change your life. And when that happens, we are able to do these things, meet physical needs, meet spiritual needs. To come over people with prayer, to be able to lift them up do the things that we can't do in our own power but believing that Christ is the one who can do these things will accomplish them. Peter ends this list of qualities with love. Love being paramount. Do you remember Paul's teaching uh, of in first to the first Corinthians uh, passage that is often quoted at weddings and other events of what is love. 
very familiar passage in chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And he goes on in this passage to talk about prophecies and other things. And you can do all these wondrous things for God. But if you are doing it without love, it means absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because love is paramount. Love is found in Christ and what he has done for us. And that, as Romans tells us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yet while we were his enemy, he died for us. He willingly laid his life down on our behalf. That is love. With no reward that he could see from us. There's nothing that we could have given him that would warrant such love. Or would compel him to do that other than following his father's will. And so we walk in that same will of his righteousness being applied to us. And his love being applied to us that we then apply that love to others. Peter says, for if these qualities are yours, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, not remaining stagnant, if these things are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that as we do these things, we continue to gain knowledge, we continue to gain wisdom, we continue to be effective for him and fruitful for him. In another passage talking about love, First Peter, in First Peter, his first letter, his first epistle to them, in chapter 4, he told them this, in verses 8 through 11. He said, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. The same thing he is reminding him now, reminding them now in the second epistle. It is all about the glory of God. It's about showing that kind of love, these qualities that he is reminding them of. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, John tells them this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, 
because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He's talking about the love that God has bestowed upon us, bestowing that love upon others, even when they don't deserve it, even when they are in the wrong, even when we are in conflict with them, even when it is our own enemy. God is telling us, show them love. Show them my love. Show them my love. The same love I have given you. The same love that has redeemed you. They might not deserve it, but you didn't deserve it either. Remember who you belong to. Remember whose you are. You are a child of God. So if you are practicing these qualities, you are increasing in these things, you will not be an ineffective or unfruitful Christian. If you would turn with me to John chapter 15 passage that Jesus is speaking in. And it's about the vine and the branches. About being a follower of God and those who do not. And what is the cost? In John chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So right there, as Peter is saying, you will, be, you will not be ineffective or unfruitful if you're doing these things. If you aren't doing these things, and you are unfruitful if you're not bearing fruit. Jesus is telling in this passage, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But he cuts it out. It's unprofitable. One who has not been truly turned. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So that it may bear more fruit. This isn't a once and done thing that we follow after these things and think, okay, I'm doing that. I'm fine. I don't need to go any further. No. That as we continue to be fruitful, what does God do? He prunes us. He changes us. He cuts things out of our lives that need to be cut out. He brings in new things. And we can produce new fruit, more fruit. For his glory. It says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. The things that Peter is talking about, the qualities that he has explained that we have just looked at, those are the qualities of abiding in Christ. Abiding in Him, we can bear fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't please God apart from Christ. It's impossible. 
If you work in your own power, in your own selfishness, in your own desire, it is impossible to please God. Those were the things that we were formally, being of the world of corruption, being of the sinful world, following after the pattern of this world and of its ruler. <coughs> but abiding in Christ, we can bear fruits. We remain in him. If anyone does not abide in me, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Lord is very specific in this, to remain in Christ, to abide in him. And his word tells us exactly what that means. The Spirit has worked through the authors of the various books of the Old and New Testament to enable us to understand these things. Peter gives us insight into what it means to abide in Christ. That having his righteousness, of having faith in him, we add these things to our faith so that we can remain in him, so that we can remain effective, we can remain fruitful, that we remain attached to the vine that we won't be cut off, that we won't be thrown in the fire, that we won't be discarded, but that we would be counted among his disciples, his followers, his believers. Peter goes on in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. He goes, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Whoever is not doing these things, whoever is not following after God, whoever is believing that uh, I have said a few words, I've believed or mentally assented to a few things, and I am fine, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten what he has been cleansed from, what he has been saved from, his former sins. Reminds me of the passage in James chapter 1, verses 23-25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. Can you imagine waking up in the morning, looking at the mirror, turning away and thinking, what do I have on again? Or is my hair okay? Is, is there anything? What? Just completely forgetting exactly what you look like in the mirror. After just looking at yourself, peering at yourself, 
turning away. That is what Peter is saying. For whoever lacks these qualities, forever is not putting these things on, is so nearsighted that he has forgotten what Christ has done for him. What the blood of Christ has satisfied. What has been removed from your life. The penalty of sin and the power of sin. And the hope of being removed from the very presence of sin in your life. Having forgotten these things. And there are many who live their lives like this. Not worrying about reading God's Word. Not worrying about what the Spirit is speaking in our hearts. Not listening to the conviction that comes up. Not obeying the things that He tells us to do when He tells us to do it. Whether it's, maybe you need to talk to that person. Maybe you should say something. Here's an opportunity for you to share the Gospel. But I'm too afraid. But, but, but. But I can't, Lord, I can't. But, but, I don't want to do that. You don't want to do those things. It's time to look at, has the blood of Christ been poured out upon your life? Or are you just living a lie? Therefore, brothers, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. What is he telling us? Confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. You want to be sure that you know who the Lord is, that He is working in your life. You are taking part in these things. You are doing these things in your life. That you are practicing these qualities and that because of it, you are remaining firm. You're not going to have to worry about being tossed to and fro when storms come your way. You don't have to worry about being led away from false ideologies or false philosophies or things that set themselves up about from, uh, up away from Christ, but that you remain firm in the teaching. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What are we looking towards? We're looking towards eternal life with God. Not having to deal with the things that are in this world, the sin that exists, the corruption that exists, things that plague us, health issues, financial issues, pain of loss, all the things that come against us. Not to worry about those things. We come into the glory of God. So Paul told them, I intend to remind you of these qualities always, so that through that though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. The words that he penned in this letter to the churches of Asia Minor are a reminder to us as well that he wanted these things to be known so that they would be remembered by all who claim to know Christ, who stand on equal ground because of his righteousness covering your life. 
Are you on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ? One of the things I closed with last week was a, a hymn, Standing on the Promises. And so today I want to close with another one. As the, the band comes forward and we sing our last song, I want you to just think of these words. I love the old hymns. I love Standing on the Promises. This is written by Johnson Oatman Jr. It's Count Your Blessings. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the days go by. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings, money cannot buy, your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged, God is over all. Count your many blessings, angels will attend, help and comfort you, give you to your journey's end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness. We thank you for the many blessings that you give us. And even as we go into this Thanksgiving holiday week, Father, I pray that that would be brought to our minds to count our many blessings and see what you have done in the life of your people, in the life of your creation, this world that you have created for your glory, in our own lives and what you have done the lives of our children, the lives of our grandchildren. Let us always be prayerfully considering the many blessings that you have given us. Be encouraged by who you are, what you have done, what you continue to do, and what we have to look forward to. And that this is not our final resting for that we will enjoy eternity with you, an eternity without sin, without tears, without pain, a life of joy and happiness, seeing you in your glory. Father, be with us as we leave this place today. Help us to have songs of joy, thanksgiving on our hearts, we pray. Amen.